Hello and welcome to episode 7 of Pitch Masters. I'm Danny Fontaine and this week I interview body language expert and author of Body Language Decoder, Martin Brooks. We discuss the importance of non-verbal communication and how we can all enhance our pitches and presentations with some very specific body language tips and tricks. Another pitch master for your delectation. Hello and welcome. Today I have with me a very special guest, communication performance coach and author of Body Language Decoder, Martin Brooks. Martin, how are you doing? I'm doing really well, Danny. I'm really looking forward to us uh, getting into this chat. I love your background. I love what you do. So I'm really looking forward to sharing some thoughts that might be really interesting for both you and your listeners. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining. So let's 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 kick off. Tell 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 everyone a bit more about yourself, a bit of your background, and how you got to where you are today. Okay. So uh, my background is was started off in sales and sales leadership. I started my career uh, in the travel industry. My one of my key loves in in my life was travel. So working in the travel industry, being able to send other people off around the world and get access wonderful discounts to be able to do that myself was like you know almost like a dream job right. wonderful fun horrifically underpaid but <laughs> that seemed like a good a good combination <laughs> and having almost like fallen into sales roles and being of an irish background having a little bit of the gift natural gift of the gab mm. there seemed to be a, a nice natural falling coming together of of the pieces there to be successful in that something i was naturally passionate about and then there's this idea about, well, if we're all selling the same product, the different agencies, different people, you know, we were all commissioned individually, branches mm. were commissioned. And that's where I really started to get interested in, well, how can I be better at this? Mm. How can I be better at this as a, as a consultant? What are the tricks? Well, once I got my hand around the technology, the products and everything else, I'm like, okay, now how do I personally excel? I want to earn the most commission that I can. I, I I really want to do that. So I started paying attention to what worked and what didn't work. And it was as much as a, there's two things, a process of elimination. You know, when you're in your early 20s, you do stuff that works. I'll do that again. You do something that doesn't work. I'm not going right. to do that again. But also paying attention to how other, other people did it. What's, what makes them good? How come he or she is, is, is successful? What, what did they just do? What did they just say? So very early on, my brain was starting to tune into, you know, what, what do the experts do? What are, what are the people who are, uh, who are more regularly successful? And when I moved into leadership positions, then it was about helping other people, coaching and training other people to be as successful as they could. So then sharing the skills and, and attributes that I'd learned. So it's it, the old adage that if you really want to get good at something, teach it to other people. Right. Because, you know, you can't just go do what I do because you, you have to sit back and go, well, actually, how do I do what I do? <laughs> you know? right, and what is right. the structure of what yeah. I do? And you, and you have, to, have to think about it much more logically and, and, and structurally to be able to do that. And then in 2002, I set up my own training consultancy my first my idea was to be the sales training company for the travel industry i'd worked in tour operating car rental and uh, travel agency and i thought you know look 
I, I'm bringing 11 years of experience of that industry. Now, if I can, I can tailor that with the travel industry, then there's a, there, that's a good combination, which all sounded wonderful, apart from the fact this was 2002 and the internet was about to kill the travel industry <laughs> as we knew of it. Of course, so, exactly. So there was, a, there was a teeny tiny flaw in my problem, yeah. that I, in, my, in, my, in my thinking that I hadn't quite considered. So I, uh, I, the, the professional version is I pivoted. Uh, the, the reality is more like I panicked. <laughs> what do I do now? <laughs> so I started doing a lot of contract training. So I, I, my training background and then going to larger companies and who would then contract in contract trainers when they want a big contract. They didn't need to employ you throughout the year. But they go, wow, we just got this big contract at London Business School. We need mm. a lot of facilitators on sales negotiation and presentation that would hire people in. So I started going out started searching that. And that was, was became a really good business for a number of years. And what was fascinating about that was every company that I worked with, they would look at all their different models of how they are you know, selling or pitching or presenting or leading or uh, communication and they said do you know this model and i go yes I, I know that come across that do you know this model yes how about you know cialdini seven levers of influence do you mm. know about that and go oh no it's all right okay well that's part of the program so we need to teach you it so you can teach it to other people i go great <laughs> hit me with yeah, it bring it on so i worked for 17 different companies the last time i checked you know over <laughs> wow. the years so and yeah. each one of those give me their their, their best models. So that gave me a huge database to be able to dip into whenever I was coaching and consulting my own clients because I was, I was constantly learning whilst working, which for me was just fantastic. And do you, do, you, do you have a favorite out of all those models that you've learned? Is, is there one or two that really stand out that have stood you in good stead for all of the work that you do? Yeah, the, the inter I'm a magpie. I'm a real magpie. It's like I, I cherry pick, you know, so everything that I, I, I've studied, I kind of look at it and I'm going, okay. Uh, and with every system, you know, they've got an inherent um, belief in like their own system and everything works and everything comes right. together. You know, you, know you, you can't dissect it and, uh, and everything works. And the simple matter is, no, not everything doesn't work. You know, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm particularly in my book, you know, we're standing up in front of a room full of people or standing up in front of a conference audience, you know, two or three times a week. I'm testing it and I can tell you whether it works or whether yeah, it doesn't. Yeah. yeah. Great, great theory. So I, I cherry pick and I've cherry picked loads of different things from lots of different uh, people and lots of different sciences about how to actually be more effective as, as a communicator. But I guess the, the bit that stands in my mind is all is, is the body language stuff, because right. that to me has been something I had a natural interest in. And I'd always had this, belief that it was something that made a difference. And when I first started studying something called NLP or Neuro Linguistic Programming uh, back yeah. in the early 2000s, and they, one of the phrases that I took away from that was, what's the difference that makes the difference? You know, what, what is it that, per, and the, the concept of modeling, of being able to look at somebody's behavior and to find where's the structure in it? Where's the structure of that success? What's step one, what's step two, what's step three? What can you see being repeated? And that to me was a huge takeaway that I took from that because it's so easy when you see somebody who's an expert at what they do mm. to be in awe, to go, oh, yeah. that's, I mean, just, just like that. I mean, that's, yeah. that, that's yeah. phenomenal. And one of the things I trained myself 
based on that idea of what's the structure. And I, I wrote an article on this a number of years ago on LinkedIn, and the title was, uh, Don't Be in Awe, Be Awesome. Okay. And I, I, I trained myself to go, as soon as I feel impressed by somebody or something, to switch my brain going, why? What yes. is the structure of what yeah. they're doing? So to, to take a step back from that emotional connection and be a bit more logical about, you know, what's in there? What's the structure of that? And that has been hugely fascinating. It changes, it changes the way my brain works, you know, when I turn that switch on that analysis. And that has been a huge part of my career, particularly in the, certainly in the latter years where I'm doing a lot of one-to-one -one coaching. So people are getting prepared for a presentation or a pitch. They stand up and they do their draft version. And I go, no, you're not going to do it like that. Uh, here, here's the bits that work. They're in the wrong place. Take it from there, put it there. Uh, and these are the bits that are missing. So that ability to be able to analyze and give people instant feedback about what works, what doesn't work, and what they could do better. So I think if I had to go back to one methodology, that's certainly one thing that I that I remember taking away that stood me in, in your words really good stead, you know, throughout my career. And it's a central part of what I do now, which is how people who are great at pitching and presenting get better. Where's mm -hmm. that extra little piece? That's why I call myself a communication communication performance coach. It's like you're great. But how do you get better? Where's the little right. tweaks? What's the things you can do differently in order to have a, have a better effect? So that's, I think that's definitely one thing I've taken away. So how powerful is body language? Can it actually change the outcome of a pitch, a presentation? Or is it just something that helps us along the way, do you think? So it's fundamental. It's absolutely fundamental. Now, what, what I find fascinating about this, you know the way you have something where you know it intuitively. Mm. You, know so, you just know something intuitively. But then there's like, well, I, th th and that's your emotional side of your brain. Your logic brain's going, but where's your evidence? <laughs> right. Where's your yeah. measurable, repeatable evidence? You know, sh show me that. Until you have that, then it's just your opinion, and that can just blow in the wind. Uh, and then it becomes your own bias. And then we yes. all know we filter for our own biases to get the confirmed. Oh, look, there's that thing that I believe. There's evidence of it. Hurrah, I'm right. Yeah, and then we post-rationalize and, oh, lo and behold, we were right. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I knew body language made a difference. I, I knew it from a personal point of view. Now, years and years standing up in front of audiences and been able to change things and get that feedback from people. I knew it worked. Then when I would look at top communicators, and I could see what they did. I could see the patterns being repeated. I could see top mm. communicators use their hands in the same way, same facial expressions go over and over again. You can see this happen. But that doesn't prove it works in a pitch. Right. <laughs> right? So then I came across an article in the Harvard Business Review in yeah. May, June 2019. And this was research done by Professor Jupp Cornelsen. I really hope I pronounced that correctly in Erasmus University in Rotterdam. And what he did was very, he approached this very scientifically. So he got a bunch of actors with a script and he said, right, we want you to pitch to these entrepreneurs, pitch this tech company or whatever it was to real entrepreneurs who were coming in thinking they were, they were getting a real pitch, kind of like a Dragon's Den right. type, type thing. Now, because they were actors, he said, right, here's your script. So he knew there was consistency in the content. There's consistency in the content. So here's your script. You say this. 
No, I want you to be kind of muted with your body language when you talk about this particular product or service or whatever it was. Uh, and you pitch to these entrepreneurs. Then he said, okay, now, second group, same script, uh, keep it exactly the same, but this time I want you to get much more effusive with your body language. If you feel like going, emphasizing with your hands or gestures, right. facial expressions, you know, yeah. go for it. Where you feel it's appropriate. Where you feel it's appropriate. And of course, then he went back to the investors and the key metric was, you know, how likely are you to invest? How likely are you to invest? And here's the magic number. The group that used their body language more effectively, the investors there said they were 12% more interested in making an investment as an average. Right. As an average. That means that some people were 13, 14, 15, yeah, 16. Yeah. Now, for me, that was like, hallelujah. <laughs> Somebody has scientifically <laughs> proven what, yeah. what, what we know. But there was two things that were fascinating about that for me. One was that it was the scientific, it was the scientific proof. Yeah. But second of all was, as good as and as, as compelling as those numbers were, those weren't necessarily people who knew how to use the power gestures, like how to use you know, the, the, the pinch of salt or how to use the thumb of power or any of the specific business-orientated pitch techniques that I would teach. That's just generally being more effusive with their body language, not being specific with credibility gestures or illustration gestures or using timelining or any of the things that I would teach a business person in a pitch. So I'm thinking if the average person can just create 12% more. Well, then what would a business person produce with very, very specific and targeted use of commercial pitch relevant body language? What would the percentage be there? Would it be 20, 25, you know? So that for me was the, you, you, finally, there's that validation and an opportunity because if that just being more effusive was 10%. Well, what's the figure when you know what you're doing works in a commercial pitch and differentiates you from your competition? That to me, then was like, no, this is the real validation that I needed. Wow. So, so for anyone listening, before you even worry about remembering all of these different poses and ways of talking and walking, just exaggerating your own movements and facial expressions could drastically increase your the way that you're coming across to your audience in a subconscious way to make them want to buy your product or service yeah because one, one of the things that's interesting about a pitch or a presentation I, I remember this distinctly when i was running a program at london business school once and it was a presentations program and this was on the, i think I believe it was the senior executive program so this is like really high level executives coming in and there's a small group because it was a lot of feedback driven so there's a maximum number of, of six executives plus plus the facilitator myself and sitting talking to this guy about his business and he was you know the senior vp of some yeah. a, a, you know huge company and i remember thinking wow that's, that's that's really impressive it's a lot of responsibility and he comes across so confidently and then we started, the, we started the program about half an hour later. And the, it was basically, it wasn't theory. It was on your feet. Let's see what their baseline is now and then how we, how we improve it. And I, I, I almost thought that the aliens had come down and stolen the guy I was talking to earlier. Because <laughs> the guy that was now in front of the room, in front of a facilitator and yeah. in front of his peers, 
it was nowhere near as credible or as confident or as effusive as the guy I was sitting talking to literally half an hour beforehand. And there's something about that competitive pitch environment, particularly if we know we're being assessed, that we shrink. You know, the nerves come in, the confidence plummets. And as that performance anxiety kicks in, what as that kicks in, our body language tends to, you know, shrink and decrease. And we don't gesticulate. We don't use our facial expressions. And we don't move our hands around because it's all about safety. And safety is like, you know, covering your your body. You know, like the, you see you see people do like the self hug. You know, the, they'll, yeah. they'll hug themselves. They say it all the they'll time. Do, yeah. They'll do self comfort gestures, like they'll touch themselves to release the oxytocin, the feel good hormone. You know, they what they what I got pulled up on years ago. Uh, 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 boss of mine years ago said i know when you're stressed and i go well how do you right. know when you're stressed and he said you stroke your portable pet and i'm like going you're what? gonna have to explain <laughs> that one to me what on earth does that mean and he said when you're stressed you know you don't have a cat or a dog to to stroke you know because the science is there that people who have cats and dogs you know are right. much less prone to stress related illnesses they don't get cancers or high blood pressures or uh, heart problems later in life because it's yeah. very therapeutic to stroke a furry animal. Well, and he, so I said, so he said, what you do when you get stressed, you start, you start doing this, you start stroking your beard. Right. That's how I know you're. That's how I know you're stressed. So it's the self comfort gestures come into play, or fiddling. You know what? Uh, what a body language expert uh, Peter Collette, a mentor of mine, calls uh, manipulators. When you start fiddling, you start fiddling yes. the stuff with the cufflinks or your pen or your collar or whatever it is then you're not being the normal expressive version of you that you normally are because those nerves are kicking in. So I spend a lot of time when I'm coaching people before we get to content or anything else is dealing with that nervousness so that they're, they can effuse naturally because they're in a better emotional state, you know, to be able to uh, deliver their pitch or their presentations. That ends up being a, a chunk of the work that I do as well. It's quite ironic then, people who are naturally confident in their own body language and movements actually get a lot worse when they get into that situation compared to people who perhaps know some of these tips and tricks. And I suppose it's about finding out through recording yourself and feedback Mm. on what are those horrible habits that we all have and then trying to consciously get rid of them i suppose is that the first step that you do rather than teaching new things is getting rid of those habits absolutely so basically when i start working with individuals it's like what's the baseline Mm. what am i what am i working with so i've coached i think it's five tedx speakers now so like when when every one of those came to me i said right send me a link to your best pitch or your best presentation send me a Mm. youtube link right okay and i'll watch that and i go okay right good 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 yeah uh, uh, and then I spot something that's missing or something that could be improved. So, right now, I know where we can we can go. I've got the baseline. I know where we are, and I know where the the areas for improvement are. And that will be from two bits. What I can see, and very often what they will come. They say, "Well, I think that I'm not so great at this, or this is a yeah. bit that I that I struggle with." And having said that, when I'm working with with more senior executives, it's phenomenal the number of them who either haven't seen themselves pitch or present or are actively avoiding seeing themselves <laughs> pitch or yeah. present you know because you know it's it's horrible for all of us you know yeah to, to, to see and hear and go wow 
Is that what my audience experiences? Is that yeah. what it's like to be on the receiving end of me? And for me, it's just like a complete nightmare because I, I I spot every tiny little mistake that I that I make because I know what I'm looking for. So there's a, but so the thing about a lot of people is that they 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 don't have that baseline awareness. You know, there. What, the, what are some of the most common things that you see then when you work with people? Okay, so a lot of the most common things are those those nervous behaviors that I talked mm. about. So manipulators, where people will fiddle with stuff, or they'll 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 rub their hands, they put their hands in their pockets, hands behind their back. In terms of vocal stuff, a lot of errs and ums. Yeah, that's definitely something I spend a lot of time on. Actually, body language is one way of being able to you being able to actually cure that for for want of a better right. word. Actually, stop it happening. There's a physiological thing you can do with your body language that stops you make, making that err on um, what we call in the business a filler sound, where you fill right. a gap where your brain's trying to catch up with your mouth in terms of what it is that you're, that you're saying. So that tends to be really common. The overall lack of awareness of, of people's body language, uh, how they stand, eye contact, and how, what, they do with, what, they, what they do with their hands. And the simplest thing of all, that they don't smile. <laughs> right. right. Nervous people. When you're nervous, you don't smile. Confident people smile. So you open up your pitch, a great big beaming smile on your face. Then, and every the other people who have pitched before you had that kind of more stoic, nervous face. Instantly, that first impression from a body language point of view is like, well, th this team seems to know their stuff. They seem comfortable in their own skin. They don't mm. seem nervous. So that, that first impression, that body language piece right from the get-go, if it's a good stance, if you get a good smile, you're looking straight at people, and you do something I call the postural advance rather than a postural retreat, then all these little things can really just get the, a lot of those feel-good hormones, those, those positive emotional first impressions. And that's when we're forming our perceptual filters of do I like or not like this person? Do I trust or not trust this person? Do I want to work or not work with this person? You know, the more senior people you tend to be pitching to, the quicker they tend to make those decisions. So the yeah. evidence that they're going on in those first few minutes, those first few seconds, it's crucially important that it's the best version of us. But of course, when we open up, that's when we tend to be most nervous. So yes. the opening is very often where I spend the most time with people working on what it is that they can do to set really positive perceptual filters in the brain of the people that they're pitching to so that they're, they're setting a filter of positivity and confidence and credibility and knowledge, all those key words in yeah. order to be able to get those people to keep listening because they're busy and they'll want to tune out. The content is king. But if you don't look right and sound right in the opening, they're never going to get to your content. It doesn't matter how good your content is. They're not going to be paying attention to it. But that's really interesting. So so I talk a lot about content um, in many different guises and and especially about that attention-grabbing moment at the beginning. Um, previous guest Adam Morgan talked about finding an anomaly, which I really like. So it's something a little bit different, unexpected, that the audience sort of sit up and pay attention to. Mm. Can we do that? Should we do that with our body language as well as the content? Absolutely. So when you think about a pitch or a presentation, 
one of the first things I say to people is this is not about you. This is about your audience. Mm. Know your audience. Now, what, where are they and where do you want to get them to? Where are they? You know, you know the sat-nav mentality. You cannot plan a journey until you've got those two points of reference. And I believe any picture presentation, you can't start planning it until you have those two points of reference as well. Because yeah. you want to get your audience to a decision, to commit, to go, we want to work with these people to do this thing. Okay, that's great. But where are they now? <laughs> oh, you know, are they happy with an existing supplier? Uh, has their existing supplier just fallen away and they're now in disarray? You know, do they do they know you? Do they like you? Do they dislike you? You know, what what's the what's the politics behind it? You know, all of that kind of stuff. You got to have the answers to all of those questions to have those two points of reference. Then your opening is then tailored towards the reality of where they are versus to where you want to get them to. And right. uh, I I love the 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 phrase that I've stolen from one of your previous guests, uh, Jeremy. You know, the cold open. You know, what's the, right. you know what, what is that thing that you do that uh, grabs their attention right at the start? How do you do that? Is it, a, is it a killer statistic? Is it a story? Is it a question to the audience? What, what are the, what are the, what's the thing that's going to work best for that audience? And then how can you communicate it effectively uh, in terms of the words, the body language, everything in order to absolutely hit that? as well as you possibly can. Hit their key, what I, you know, from my sales background time, they're hot buttons. What are the hot buttons you go? And they go, oh, you're saying you're doing the right thing. Yes, we're interested and tell us more. So it really, really are some key things you need to think about in terms of that opening and knowing what you're gonna say, knowing what your behavior is going to be and knowing what hand gestures you're going to use right at the start. Now your body language at any point in time in a pitch can completely do, completely ruin your credibility. So, for example, if you uh, use a, de a deception tell where they think might think, well, what you're saying now isn't true. So, for example, a, a truth slip, right? right? So they ask a question. I'm fascinated so, by this stuff. Yeah. yeah. So in, in body language decoder, there's a whole section on deception tells. And right. um, uh, the, the, the current government is a, is a wonderful shining example, particularly the previous <laughs> prime minister of, of, of deception. Yeah, PMQs every Wednesday. Absolutely. Yeah, tune in. <laughs> there, there's, there's the best <laughs> method. And the one that you see most often there, uh, particularly from Boris Johnson, he used to do it all the time. It was like mm. almost like clockwork, was the truth slip. So he would say no or say yes, but do the opposite movement with his head. So and he was asked All about right. will will the Sue Gray be report being be published in full? He went absolutely. <laughs> just shook his head, shaking no. his head all the time. Yeah. Right. So so in a pitch, you know, it's often said that you know it's actually the quest, the Q and A at the end that will finally decide it between the two or three people that they think are really going to uh, really they're going to go work with, because most people can do a pretty good pitch, you know, but that's all one-way communication that's all planned yeah. and going out planned rehearsed right yeah. so that that you know so you got to be good at that you're in the game you're in the now you're in the final three and it's the q a that will sort out you know the pit the person who gets the gold medal versus the person who gets the silver or in business case nothing if you say yes but you shake your head no but if you say no and nod your head yes that can be thought of as a truth slip now people don't need to know that theory because unconsciously we know we know what truth looks like and we know what deception looks like. And we may not be able to put our finger exactly on why we get that. Mm, no, I'm not feeling it. I'm not feeling it. 
Whereas I go back and I look at a presentation and pitch and go, I can tell you why they're not feeling it. <laughs> because when they right. asked you that deadline question, you did a truth slip. They go, what's a truth slip? Yeah. It doesn't matter because they recognize, even though they wouldn't know what it was, you know, they have that, nah, I'm not feeling it. I don't, yeah. and then you go, I don't know what, I don't know why, but I like, I like, I liked him and I didn't like him. Now the, the him that they liked was consistent with their communication and their body right. language and the him that they didn't like perhaps showed some deception tells. So we'll get into the specifics just in a moment around the different things that we can actually do with our hands and you're going to have to narrate them as you act them out as well. But just before that, just because I'm really, I'm always intrigued by this. I don't know whether it's a fascination with FBI and, and true crime, but what are the other tell, the lying deception tells? I like to hear about those. So you've got one of the other ones is a blink rate. Mm. And there was actually a, a thing when Liz Truss came into the Houses of, Houses of Parliament that day where she didn't speak and she kind of sat there and she was blinking like crazy. So right. when, you're, when your blink rate go, goes up, that is very often a sign of, of stress. You know, and often right. stress tells get conflated with deception tells. But so certainly blink rate, and this is where you need a baseline, what's somebody's normal blink rate. And then you, when you know that, then you can start to see when it increases. Okay. So another one that, that is really easy, easy to spot is you know, where, where people try and do what I call the prolonged blink. So they kind of just do a longer blink yeah, when, I've you, seen that. when you ask yeah. them a question. So can you do this? And they go, yeah. And what they're basically looking to do is to hide from you. They don't want you to see into their eyes, you know, eyes being gateway to the soul and all that. So the prolonged blink. I've seen people do it really prolonged. Yeah. I've seen people saying whole sentences with their eyes closed. And it looks really, really odd. And it's so obvious. And I... Do you think they know that they're doing it? No, because most of this is unconscious. No. Most people are, are mm. completely uh, un unaware of those particular tells in, ter in, in terms of those. Uh, one of my other favorites is what we call the, the postural retreat. So right. you, you say to somebody, uh, can you do that? And they go, absolutely. And they, and they, they, they sit back away from it. Uh, and that, that's, that's almost like, here's this fact or this deception that I'm uncomfortable with. So I'll move away from it. Right. So I'll move away from it. Or what's even more fascinating, when you see a pitch team and you see them, they're sitting together and they're all, you know, they're, they're, all, they're all sitting upright. And then one person says something that the person beside them is either uncomfortable with or knows that is untrue. And I, I've seen, you know, sales directors and manufacturing managers, you know, can you manufacture those? Salesperson goes, yes. And then the manufacturing manager just moves away from them. They just wow, like, they just, just, lean, they just away. lean away. They literally don't want to be associated with that. And it's completely unconscious response to something. I feel very uncomfortable with that thing that you've just said. And I really don't want to be wow. associated with that. And they will move away. They will literally move away from it. So that there's something that I'm uncomfortable with and I will, I will move away from it. And in a, in a pitch, in a Q and a very often you see this on the Q, on the Q and a part where they say, you know, can you do that? And they go, uh, absolutely. And they step back or even before they answer, they recoil from the question. So I got, I got picked up on this. This must be 20 years ago where I got that piece of feedback when I was working for a company and the guy who ran that training company was like, he was tough. 
he wanted people to be really good. So he sat in a number of sessions and give me some really between the eyes direct feedback. And one of the pieces of feedback that I'll ever forever be grateful for him was that he noticed that when the audiences asked me questions, I did this. I did postural retreats and I had right. no idea that I was doing it. No idea that I was doing it. And he said, the answers you're giving are really good. But have you noticed that the same guy keeps coming after you, after you, after you? Every, every 10, 15 minutes, he keeps on coming up. And I went, yeah. And he went, it's not your answers. And, I'm, and then he paused. And I'm going, what the hell is it? And he goes, because you keep stepping back. So part of him goes, yep, see, fear. Thought right. I smelled so you're it. conceding ground I'm, to I'm him, moving away. Every time he asks me a question, you're, you're moving away. So that's another one, particularly in the pitch and the Q&A. So now I do a bit of reverse psychology. So whenever somebody asks me a really tough question, I'll, I'll go, oh, that's a good, I'm really pleased you asked me that. And I'll move forward. Or if I'm standing up in a pitch, I'll take a half step forward. And you can just see their brain going, that's not supposed to happen. You're not supposed to, you know, move toward, lean into that. Right. You're not supposed to move yeah. towards that. Because yeah. everybody else we asked either was slightly frightened, stood still, or stepped back. So as a, as, a, as, a, as a differentiator, you know, just that little half step forward on a, on a, on a difficult question. Or I even say to people, you know, when you, when you open, a, open a presentation, just say good afternoon or good morning or hello, whatever you're opening, and take a little half step forward. Because mm. a lot of people take a little half step back when they start. Right. They're, they're feeling nervous. They want to create a little bit more space between them and their audience. You know, they, they move away from, you know, we instinctively move away from danger. That's, yeah. We're hardwired for that. We hear a loud bang, we jump away from it. You know, we're hardwired to move away from danger. So when you do something again that everybody else is pitching for that doesn't do, which is step forward at the start, part of their brains will go, oh, different, confident, nice, right, that's good. Because right. you get a lot of people do a little half step back. That's called the postural retreat. And you see people even do it virtually like we're doing now. They get a tough course and they go, um, yeah. And they just... They just sit back, almost like they physically recoil. Like, that's interesting. Why did that question elicit that kind of response? What's what's that? What's that about? And of course, that's not sending the right messages in terms yeah. of that tough question. I feel a bit under pressure now. You're watching <laughs> me, and I'm going to try not to lean away from the microphone. So that's great. So so let's let's get to some more details then. So let's imagine that you're opening a pitch. Oh, actually, here's a quick question. Mm. Standing up or sitting down, does it make a big difference? Well, if you have the opportunity to stand up, I would always choose standing up. Okay, always. that's what I thought. Always. Good. Because you've now got not just upper body movement, you've got whole body movement that's available to you. On webcams these days, you can now, you, it's a bit more tricky. People are more used to doing that. But if you've got a good setup, you can get the camera for far enough away that you can stand up. If you've got a long enough lead <laughs> yeah. on your <laughs> headphones, then you don't have to be close to your camera. And then I could start, I do workshops where I stand up and now a lot more of my body language can come into camera. Right. So yeah, that and in the room, always, always stand up because what that does is that connects back to our classroom times and the person standing up is the person with authority. And the students are the right. people who are sitting down. So if you're standing up, then automatically there's a degree of authority. Not only are you standing up, but the people who are in the audience are looking up at you. So all of those 
psychological associations, you know, put you in a position of being in control of the meeting and controlling the flow, as well as giving your body the ability to be able to, to move more, to be able to step forward, to be able to like have a, uh, to use, um, a spatial anchoring was a technique called spatial anchoring. So you can have, you can stand here when you're telling a story. So this is my storytelling spot. And then you can move over here when you talk about the problems, but then you can move to this point and here's the wonderful solutions. And here's where all the good right. news is and the positive feeling. And you see good keynote speakers do that. They'll have, they'll have a spot where they tell the stories, a spot where they talk about problems and the spot where they talk about solutions. Um, that, that, that's getting space anchored. And even in virtual calls, you can say, so the problem that we have is, there, so there's the problem, but what we want to move to is a solution over here. So move you can your have your hands, hands yeah. pointing to the left, you know, he, here's this problem, but what we want it, where we want to get to, or if you're timelining, you can do the same thing. You can go, so we're starting here and have your hand on one side and then move mm. left to right. So the first thing that we need to do is this, the second hand is slightly further away, then move it further away. Then the next thing, the next thing, the next thing, moving one hand further and further away from the other. Now here's your timeline. There's a start point and there are key milestones and then we end up with the result. And you can do that with your whole body when you're standing, but sat down, you can still do it with your hands. And I assume the, the main thing that that's doing is, is kind of reducing the cognitive load on the audience because their brains are going, ah, he stood there, so I know I'm going to get a solution. He stood there, so I know I'm going to get a story. Is, is, that, is that right? It, it, it creates almost like a mental map in terms mm. of things, things, that are, things that are now happening. And the audience will, like, will, will associate you know, certain things. You know, the, the brain is tuned to recognize patterns. We're pattern mm. recognizing mammals. That's what we do. We recognize patterns, even if it's only on an unconscious level. It doesn't matter because it's still registering with the brain. So being able to, so there's, there's two things about the spot thing. Then you can refer to that, and then that allows people. It's almost like a structure. You know, mm. some of my some of my colleagues. Say it's called visual signposting. So here's the problem. Oh yeah, the problem. So remember, we yeah. were talking about the problem. Oh yes, we were. Now, the solutions to that, oh, yes, that's the solution. Yeah, I get that. I, so they start to connect those, the, those meanings to those particular uh, spaces. So, that, so that's really important. And, it's, and then the second thing is that in terms of like cognitive load, it makes it easier to understand because there's a visual reference as well as a yeah. vocal reference. So you say plan A or the starting point, you do that. Well, there's the starting point. Then visually and vocally, the brain is getting that message through two different channels, visually and vocally. If you're not using your hands, well, there's a starting point. Okay, that's a verbal reference point, but it's nowhere near as impactful as a visual and a vocal reference Right. Point. So it's like, you know, what I call multi-sensory communication. When your body language and your voice and your tone are all pointing towards the same thing, it's much easier for people to understand yeah and one of the things that may well be relevant to your audience certainly being to people where i'm uh, coaching as well if you're speaking to somebody in english isn't their first language mm. then the more visual stuff that you do helps people understand easier and better okay so let's get down to brass tacks let's mm. imagine that i have uh just opened up a big pitch i got a, a c-suite in front of me i'm stood up I've got my provocative, compelling statement all lined up, ready to go. 
I take a deep breath. I take a, a step forward. That's what I've got so far. What do I do next? What do I do with my hands? Maybe hands is a good next step to, yeah. to talk about because it's quite a big topic, isn't it? Absolutely. So one of the most useful and, and easy gestures that, that to use is something called the parallel hand chop. So if you have your hands almost like you're doing like a karate chop and you kind of raise them to shoulder height and then you bring them down in a, in a chopping motion until they're, they're or you almost create a, 40, a 90 degree angle between your forearm and your upper arm. So good afternoon. Hello. Welcome. Right. That, and that just, it's, it's, it's a real credibility gesture. Right. So that, it's called the parallel hand chop. You know, Tony Blair used to do it a lot. It was one of his favorite gestures that you see that he used to do. And you see Barack Obama used it a great deal. Clinton used it a great deal. And it's just that credibility. It says credibility. So quick question. And before we get into too many more of these, is it that because because I think some people, me included, may begin to feel a bit overwhelmed with here are all the gestures and not only are there a lot of gestures, but they're good for uses at different times. Mm. So are you saying that karate chop parallel hands is good for opening and for specific things or it's it's good for asserting points. It's good for right. to go so the, and this is the thing that we recommend on you chop. And it, it. It, that, that's the solution. That's the key thing you need to remember. It's right. really good for emphasizing those points as, as you go through a presentation, even like a, a little single hand chop. So what we need to do is create the opportunity. And, and, right. chop, and you chop on each of the key words. But in the opening, it's a really good way of establishing credibility. You know, establishing credibility. Now, a question I got asked once was, "Well, why? Where does where where, where does that? Yeah, it's a good question. Yeah. It's a great question. Where <laughs> yeah. where it comes from? And the thing about because uh, I do a lot of leadership work, work. It's about as a leader, and whether that's leader of a project or leader of a team or or leader as as a representative of an organization that's uh, going to be working with another company. You know, I'm I'm your lead person. I, basically, you're saying the same thing. If you're following me, you're safe in my hands. Right. I've got this. I know what right. I'm talking about. Me and I team, we've got this. We know what we're doing. It's what airline pilots look to do in their safety briefings. You know, with that slow, deep voice that they do, you know, yeah. when they're, you know, I'm your pilot. I'm going to talk to you in this slow, deep voice. I'm going to give you information that you do not need. I never thought about that. I always think pilots have just got deep, slow voices. I've worked with many voice coaches who've worked in the travel industry and pilots are taught to speak like that because what they're basically doing is assuring people, you know, as we hurtle through the sky in this pressurized <laughs> tin can, I want you to know you're yeah. safe. That's, that's the message, but they have to do it wow. vocally. They can't do it yeah. visually. So if yeah. you, when you can do it visually, we, we, we know primary sense, sight, we need to know that they've got this and the person in charge understands it. And I looked at a lot of research on this. And the thing that really struck me was when how you pick up a baby when it's in discomfort. And when you right. pick up a baby's lying there, maybe it's got a bit of wind, it's got a bit of, you know, it, it's hungry or whatever. And you lean in with your two hands. And, you, and you, of course, you have to have them in a kind of a, almost like a chopping motion because, and the thumb up, because you then scoop them up. You put the, the, the fingers underneath their armpits. You pick them up 
you pop them on your shoulder and you pat them on daddy's got you mommy's got you. wow so it, it all comes back to freud at the end of the absolutely. day absolutely <laughs> so think about it wow. they're, you're, they're lying there in discomfort and they see this movement they see these two hands coming towards them which is immediately followed by the best form of comfort available pop them right. on your daddy's shoulder little pat in the back and they can just go psychologically ha ah, my you know yeah. i'm i'm safe and it's the same thing yeah. as a leader or it's the same thing with a big project you're you're, you're basically saying your multi-million pound budget is safe with us we've right, got this yeah. we we know what we're doing you can trust us so that's the psychological association that's where i believe it actually comes from and why you see it so prevalently amongst top communicators and politicians and business leaders to really assure people we do know our stuff we've got this you can trust us wow that makes a lot of sense so what else have we got in our toolkit then? We don't want to be chopping the whole time, no, I assume. No, because like uh, too much of a, any good thing then becomes a bad thing. So you want to have a, right. a variety. So other power gestures that you can use, uh, one is the, it's called the thumb of power. Okay. And this is where if you imagine you put your, but if you make a fist where your thumb is on top, if you make a fist when your thumb is on top, now that's quite an aggressive gesture. You don't, you know, you don't shake your fist at a client. Yeah. But you do want to assert people and it, because we call these soften fist gestures. So you then, if you take the fist and you relax the upper two fingers and you take the thumb and you let the thumb go into the crook of your, of your top finger. So now the, the, the knuckles are still available for sight, but the fist is much softer and the thumb then pops down into the crook of that top finger. And that's called the thumb of power. And that was one of Clinton's favorites. You know, I've got this. This is yeah. what we're doing. This is how it goes. This is what we need to be able to do. And when I sat and, and looked at Barack Obama's first inauguration speech, he did the thumb of power 93 times within that wow. first inauguration speech. So that was, he was like following Clinton. Clinton's the master. But then Barack Obama went on to create his own softened fist gesture, which I call the pinch of salt. So again, make a fist and then you relax your thumb and your forefinger and you imagine you've got a little, little pinch of salt between your thumb and your your top finger and you go this is what we're doing this is a key thing and that's the pinch of salt but again it's a softened fist gesture it lets people know you're in charge you've got this you know what you're doing it, it almost feels as well like you're being extremely accurate with your information yes. when you're doing that yes. yeah because if you think about a pinch of salt, it's tiny. To be able to hold that detail, you know, you need to be quite precise. So when you're talking about detail or something really complicated, the pinch of salt is going to be much better gesture to use than the chop. The chop's fine, but it's a, yeah. it's a much better one to be able to use with any kind of, of detail or organization or specific knowledge is required. And the pinch of salt is a great one to be able to visually back that up. I'm going to practice that one. Yeah. I like it. Uh, another option is another softened fist gesture is the downward point. So oh. if you if you take your fist that we had it before where your thumb was on the top and you turn your fist sideways, so now your knuckles are at the top and, and your, your palm is facing down, but you're still making the fist. But then you take your forefinger right and you point down, the downward point. Now, this is a real assertive thing about this is what needs to happen now. We do it now, like this. This is what's going to happen. 
And it was really interesting watching Joe Biden's State of the Union address this year because he was doing this and he was actually hitting the podium with his finger. This is what needs to happen in Ukraine. This is important. We need to do this. And every time yeah. there was that action word, he'd do that downward point. And even the tip of his finger was actually hitting the podium as he went through. I think he did it 53 times within the State of the Union address where he's that downward point to assert that point. And because the knuckles are visually showing, it really shows that what they're saying is non-negotiable. Right. It's non-negotiable because it's a version of the fist. It's a version of right. the fist. So it's like this is non-negotiable. So whenever you so you got so if you got a chop for overall confidence and assertion, you've got the thumb of power for like have confidence that we know what we're talking about. You then have the pinch of salt for trust us, we understand the detail. And then the downward point for this is how it has to be. This is non-negotiable. This needs to happen here now like this. Wow, that's great. And, and what's, what's funny is that I've studied all of these speeches that you've mentioned so far. <laughs> Not noticed But from it. a structural content perspective, and boy, have I been missing a trick, I think. We, you know, half of it sounds like body language. It, it's a big chunk of it. And of course, what the best speakers, what the best presenters, what the best senior executives do, they've got the best, they've got killer content. They've yeah. got really good body language and they've got really good vocal tones. Those are your, your, your three core building blocks. So what about, what about the rest of our body? When we are doing a pitch, should we be walking around or should we be rooted to the floor? Yeah. Movement is good. And we talked about having particular, going to particular places to move. So a couple of things around that is that if we're static, our eyes are not designed to look at a static object. And that's why on long haul mm. flights, you watch two movies back, back to back, you're going to have a raging headache. Yeah. Okay? Because our eyes are not designed to look at stationary objects. You know, that's, that's, that's how we end up wearing glasses because we spend too much time. Right. We need to look forward, back, forward, back, middle distance, long distance, etc. So standing still makes it hard work for your audience. So a bit of movement is good. Now, that presents then some issues. Well, how do you move? Where do you move to? And particularly if you've got like a computer to come back to, you know, you want to make sure that you don't find yourself at the far end of the stage and then having to scuttle back to get back and see yeah. what, what, yeah. Your next, what your next point is. But be aware of how you move. So I always say move, root, talk. Then move. Don't, right. don't walk and talk because that's just a little bit too distracting. And to walk, you need to look where yeah. you're going, which now means you're not looking at your audience. So think yeah. about it. So I say, you know, move to a different spot, then then connect. Perpetual motion, I find, is, is difficult for people. And I remember going to a marketing conference, and it was a wooden stage, and a very senior speaker, and he walked back and forth constantly. And each step he took, he clicked his heel on the floor. As he, as, uh, every step he oh, clicked his heel. No. And he's walking back and forth. He's clicking his heel. And I'm, I'm, I'm going, one, two, three. Is he going to do it again? One, two. And I, and, also, and I have no idea what he's just said. None. Because the problem is when you hear something like that, then you can't help but hone in on it. Then that's all you hear, yeah, isn't exactly. it? Yeah, exactly. So, so the, the movement is good uh, because, you know, it, it keeps the eyes engaged. How you move is really important. So take a couple of confident steps, root your feet mm. again, 
lock and load with the audience uh, and connect with them. And another piece of advice I, I, I always use, if, if you do have a podium, you got to come back to where there's some notes or you want to make sure that something mm. there, always do what I call the little presentation loop. So if you have a point, you go, so this is the point. You know what point you're going to make. Then you can go off and you can have a wander. And as you're finishing that point, then you loop back to that central point again where your notes or your clicker or where the screen is you know, you know, right. so that you don't find yourself way off the end of the stage finishing a point and going and my next point is scuttle 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 <laughs> back over to yeah. you know where your notes are or where your powerpoint clicker or whatever it is so you so the, that little presentation loop where you you're you're re returning back to a central point if you need to before you start the next point that's a good way of of punctuating it and creating yeah. some movement because our eyes are more engaged by something that's, that's moving sometimes rather than something that, that that's static. And I come back to your earlier point, that's where sitting down, doing a sit down pitch, is more difficult uh, to mm. do that. Right. And I, what I've seen uh, people do, I think works really well. If they can feel the energy level start to drop, uh, then they can go, you know, let me just illustrate this point. And they go up, and actually get a flip chart and go, look, let, let, let's look at it like this. And that breaks it, that creates movement. Yeah. And I'll, I'll share this little tip with you. If you're doing a pitch in an environment that you've got control over, uh, then uh, prepare, be prepared to do that three or four times in a pitch, even if you only do it once. And the secret is always at the top right left-hand corner of the flip chart is to take a pencil yeah. and write some keynotes very lightly in pencil. Oh, nice. Right? I like so it. So you can go to what looks like a blank page to your audience, yeah. and all of a sudden you're pulling key stats and percentages and stuff out of the air. <laughs> if you look at the journey map of this, you know, it's this 4% here, but how that translates into this and this market share and how we do that. And all you're going off is like three or four key stats that you've written in light pencil in the top left-hand yeah. corner of the flip chart. And that's so much more engaging than watching three PowerPoint slides that are pre-prepared. Oh, I like that a lot. And, and that's a good, good, good point, actually. In general, I think, that, I think we all know that the ideal pitch or presentation is something that we've got memorized and we know like the back mm -hmm. of our hands because it completely freezes up to, to just relax and use our hands and not worry about podiums and all the rest of it. But <laughs> most of us, I think, are often not in that situation. And we need at least some kind of notes of some description to, to keep us on track. Even if we don't use them, it's really good safety net, I think, to give us a bit more confidence. So what's the best way of doing this? Do we leave notes on the podium? Do we have little cards that we index cards that we carry around with us? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I'm not a big fan of cards because they can get dropped and get mixed up. I think for me... You know, I remember years ago running a, a three-day sales program and I had one sheet of paper and one of the delegates stopped chatting to me and he said, well, what's that? And I said, well, that's my mind map for the, for the course. And he went, for today? And I went, no, for the whole three days. So it's it just uh, right. everything on one page. And I could run the whole course off that, off that, that one piece of paper because it just had the key words, right? Now you're going to talk about sensory acuity. Okay, so I know what my stories are about sensory acuity. I know what the key points are. I know the key figures. Great. So I, there, there's like there's like a buzz phrase, and that's half an hour of content. Now I'm talking about a, right. a, a three-day training event, obviously. Yeah, yeah. But similarly in the pitch, you know, key words 
that go, right, we're doing this, then we're doing that, then we're doing that. So that you, you got that system. What I find is that when you have notes, the comfort blanket of knowing you've got them means invariably you don't need them. When you right. don't have them <laughs> and there's no comfort blanket, <laughs> that's when you really need them because you know you yeah. have you, you you know there's no reference point for you to go to. So I would always have uh, something that has that structure that I can go back to, and the and I always use for any notes I use the the three B's method. They got to be big. They got to have lots of blank space around them, and they've got to be brief. So you can glance at it from a from when you're standing up. So you can you can read it from a meter away. Because very often we write notes, don't we? That we're 30 centimeters away. And then we stand up and we're a meter away and we go, what's that? And the third B then is brief. You don't write down sentences because you've got to read sentences right. for them to make sense. So if it's like one or two key words, ah, right, great. Uh, you know, uh, market segmentation, great. Now I know what I'm doing on that. We've mentioned nerves a couple of times. Let, let's get on to that because actually, even if you do know your stuff like the back of your hand and you've rehearsed it for months and it's all gone to plan those nerves can just ruin everything can't they they can make your brain just go completely blank and i'm sure we've all been in an awful situation like that and and the problem is if you've had one awful situation that then becomes a trauma in your mind for all future situations do, yeah. as well it's like this big horrible ball of nastiness so how do we deal with that how do we perhaps long-term and short-term deal with some of those nerves? So the first thing is to go that, for me, is nerves are a good thing. Okay. Nerves are a good thing. Now, you might think, well, well, you talk about confidence and exuding confidence and credibility and confidence. Why on earth would you say that nerves are a good thing? Nerves are a good thing because that is your brain's way of saying, this is not a normal day. Okay. There is something else at stake. You need to up your game mm. a little bit. So I always use the example of when I, in my previous house, I had, a, I had what I call shed quarters. I had an office shed right. in the garden. Yeah. And it was, four, it was four meters by four meters. And remember when, they, when they, they laid the concrete slabs, it was four meter by four meter concrete slab. And of course, the six inches raised off the ground and then they built the, the, sh the shed on top of it. And the example I use, if, you walk, if somebody said to me, walk around that confidently and make sure you don't fall off the edge. How confident would you be you could do that? Of course, this is easy. Right. Now, if that four by four meter concrete slab is in the top of a hundred story building. Right. And you say, now walk around that four meter by four meter space and don't, you know, it's a completely different scenario. Yeah. Right. It's the same physical space, but the environment is different. You may feel wonderfully confident at ground level, but you're going to feel quite nervous, and rightly so, yeah. on the top of a 100-story building because there's much more at risk. There's much more at play. You need to pay more attention. And sitting in your office, you know, working something out, and standing in front of a group of potential buyers for a multi-million pound deal, that is a different environment. Right. Of course you're going to feel nervous. That's your brain's way of saying, hey, <laughs> uh, you got to be on the top of your game here today. Yeah. Now, what's really important is that that natural anxiety doesn't go into panic mode right. and self-doubt and all you know the negative self-talk and all that uh, horrible stuff. So it has a purpose. 
So for me, and it sounds kind of crazy when, when to say it, but I always go, I, I like to talk to my own brain. Yeah, yeah. I like to talk to my own brain. So whenever I start to feel that really nervous, I like to go, thank you for that flag. Thank you for giving me that feeling of I now need to pay even more attention than perhaps I want. Right. So then I, I take that nervous and now I need to channel it into what it is that I'm actually going to do. So more preparation, more research, more practicing, more standing up, practicing this particular pitch because I'm recognizing the signal that you're giving me in terms of anxiety and then channeling it into the, the positive energy about how you actually do it. The problem is that people get that initial uh, sense of, of, of worry Dread. and the adrenaline yeah. and the cortisol kicks into play. And then rather than refocusing that, they tend to expand it. And that starts to become an inhibitive. And then people start to go, well, what happens if I feel like that during the pitch? Right, exactly. And then that, beca that, that becomes almost like, a, which it should never be a focus, but it's, it's now a complete distraction. And the brain works on the self-fulfilling prophecy, you know, and it works on what you imagine is much more likely to happen. So if you're imagining bad things happening, then that makes it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. It's much more likely to actually happen. And we know professional athletes, and this has been measured, they practice mental visualization. They visualize how that javelin throw is going to go, how that sprint's going to go. You look, interview any top performance athlete, and they will tell you about how they do visualization. There have been all sorts of scientific studies that show that it enhances performance. So that's positive visualization. Well, we've actually got an everyday word for negative visualization. We call it worrying. Right. Right. So we run through in our heads what we don't want to happen. Yeah. Right. So now here's the, here's the kicker. Our brain doesn't do don'ts. If I was to say to you, Danny, under no circumstances now, do I want you to think of a blue elephant? Don't think of its blue ears or its blue trunk. Bang, you're there. Right? So the more you say to yourself, don't mess up, don't uh, trip up, don't forget something, you're much more likely to actually do those things so so let's just get a bit specific so let's you know imagine you are a, a younger person at the beginning of your career in business and sales and you've got a big pitch in front of lots of other people and they're listening to this and they're going martin you know what their concept sounds great but you know I, i'm not capable of just turning the negative into the positive how can you help them okay so the first thing is, is belief. Mm. The first thing is belief. Do you believe this is possible? Because if somebody doesn't believe it's possible, then you're, do you're doomed to failure. Once you decide you want to play the game and you want my help, I'm all in for you. But I'm not going to convince you that you can do it. There has to be a decision inside your own mind that, that you can do it. So it starts there. And it's, it's a, it's a self-belief. And that's right. Right. Now we can start to think about how can you project yourself confidence. And whilst confidence is a, is a wonderful thing to be able to put out there, the starting point always for me is do the work. Right. You have to have done the work. You've got to, uh, there's, a, there's a wonderful interview I saw, um, uh, the actor Jeff Daniels. Oh, yeah. And he's being interviewed about, you know, the opening scene, you know, with the, the America is not great. Right. From the, the from the TV series. Uh, and uh, 
he does that speech and he was talking about that he read that script and he went this is this is the this is the once in a lifetime opportunity as an actor right and he talked about going for the audition he talked about being really confident he's going those people aren't interviewing me i'm interviewing them right and he talks about all oh, this incredible confidence building techniques and he said but then you've got to go away and you've got to do the work so i yeah. stole that from jeff daniels i yeah. said do the work so now the responsibility is on you to be able to put the work in to be able to exude all of that yeah. so the starting point the brain right now i need to go away and i need to do the work so the starting point for any pitch, any presentation, and feeling genuinely confident about it, is that you know you've done the work. Yeah. Because people often come to me and go, oh, what's the best confident hack? And I go, do the work. And I go, that doesn't sound very interesting. <laughs> That's no fun. <laughs> no. That's no, there's no fun in that. And yes, I've got confidence-boosting stuff that can you know, settle your nerves and boost your confidence. But that's, like, that, that's, the, that's the icing on the cake. Yeah. You know, you've got to do the substance, which is actually do the work then we can add the extra layers on of body language and voice and deal with performance anxiety. So I've got techniques I use to settle people's nerves and boost confidence. Right. Can you share any of those with us? For sure, for sure. So first of all is the idea that fear and excitement come from the same hormone, adrenaline. It's just the amount that's in the system. Okay, so when you feel that kind of fear, that's adrenaline. Now, is it going to be good adrenaline or bad adrenaline? So being able to think about the uh, first thing about, well, nerves are the, the flag. Mm -hmm. Okay, this is this performance. There's this something at play here. Great. So one, one of my tricks is to be able to immediately turn that around and goes, what a wonderful opportunity. Right. How, and given that it's so difficult, how cool will it be when this works? Yeah. How cool will it be? Uh, I know it's hard, and that's exactly why I want to do it. You know, and there's one. What's the what's the quote? Uh, Jim Rohn. Um, if you want to have the success that one percent of the population have, you got to be prepared to do what ninety nine percent of the population. Are. Exactly. Right. You you've got to be willing to take on the challenges. And one of the reasons why I love presenting and being in front of a room full of people is because the vast majority of the population that that's their idea of hell. Yeah. Great. So I'm going to go and play in a space that's occupied by fewer people. I've, yeah. got less, I've got less competition. Now, now when I go play there, I want to do it better than anybody else. <laughs> so it's that mindset of, right, let's, let's go kill this. Yeah. And that starts with you know, the, the, men, the mental attitude and being able to change that internal dialogue. And for me, the excitement comes from recognizing the challenge and recognizing how great it will be when you meet the challenge. Yeah. So for settling nerves and boosting confidence, I've got, I call the three B's method. Okay, so it's body, breath, and brain. Yeah. Body, breath, brain. So brain is, is noticing your internal dialogue and what things that you're saying about yourself and, and being in control of that and changing that. So this is the, if you've got some time, you've ever come across the man called Ethan Cross, He's done a lot of work on inner dialogue and how it, you know, how your inner voice is really, really important. Uh, distinction on that is that he found that actually that if you, if you, if you do what, what's written on my mug that I'm drinking from is you've got this. If you actually precede that with your own name, right? You talk to yourself in third person. It's got an extra ten to fifteen percent effect. Wow. But if you talk to yourself in third person, it's almost like you're giving somebody else advice. 
I would say, Martin, you got this. Danny, you'd say, Danny, you've got this. Yeah. And that just gives that sense of confidence. The second is breath. The second is breath and utilizing your breath. Because when we're nervous, we tend to shallow breathe. And, you know, if you go into a hospital, the first thing they do, if you're going to have an operation or anything, is they put that little clip on your finger yeah. to, to measure your saturation. You know, and that's got to be at 97, 96%. If that drops to 95, 94, the alarm goes off. Oxygen saturation is crucial to your health, but it's also crucial to brain function and particularly cognitive function. Right. You talked about brain blank yes. before, right? When there is a lack of oxygen through people not breathing properly, and people will often hold their breath. Yeah, not breathe really at all. Yeah. Not breathe at all. Yeah. Now, what happens is the brain goes, okay, we will now prioritize motor function. Yeah. So you will not fall over. You know, you can move, but we will completely take all that oxygen away from the cognitive, you know, functioning of the brain, the higher functions, and we'll just make sure you don't fall, you don't fall over. So, yes, you can stand and may possibly move, but there is no, there is no cognitive processing ability whatsoever because the oxygen has all been put into, you know, the essentials, you know, right. breathing in and out, digesting, control, controlling your anal sphincter, all those kinds of things, <laughs> you know, are, are, are prioritized. Yeah breath make sure you're doing deep diaphragmatic breathing as part of your preparation yes. you know and again there's all sorts of health benefits to deep breathing from yoga and meditation all scientifically validated so deep diaphragmatic breathing so always good lots of good deep breaths before you walk into a pitch uh, take deep breaths in between your key points and here's my top tip for that q a whenever anybody asks you a question first thing you should do is breathe in right they finish asking the question you go and then you start talking so what you're doing you're oxygenating the brain fully to formulate the answer and then to be able to communicate it effectively because what often people do is they start talking too quickly right exactly so brain breath body and they've scientifically proven that if you stand and act confidently your testosterone levels go up and your cortisol levels go down. Yeah. If you move or sit or you shrink, you know, shrinking posture, you do self-comfort gestures, you roll your shoulders forward, then your testosterone goes down and your cortisol, your stress hormone goes up. Right. So practice standing nice and tall, sitting tall, even the way I'm sitting right now. Throughout this interview, the middle and the upper part of my back have never touched the back of the chair. Right. There's a right angle between my thigh bones and my torso. There's that sense of attention. And there's a right angle between my thigh and my shin going to the floor. And there's a right angle between my foot and my shin. There's all right angles. So it's paying attention, sitting up straight, saying to my body, this is important, focus. And similarly, when we're standing, stand up straight, throw your shoulders back, have them nice and down. You can notice how people stress people are by how close their shoulders are to their ears. So get them down and feel nice and relaxed. And again, like you said earlier, you can video yourself, make sure you look good. Stand with your feet hip width apart because when they're, when they're touching, you know, you're, you're a bit wobbly. But a good sense of uh, spacing. Lock and load eye contact with key people and smile. Now, all of those things will boost your own testosterone and help you naturally feel more confident. Now, when you're doing 
chop gestures or the pinch of salt or the thumb of power, again, all of those body language gestures are associated with confidence and assertion. Now, we talk about them in terms of giving that signal to your audience. But remember, they're also a clear signal to your own brain about what chemicals to release into your body. Not cortisol, but loads of testosterone. Right. So you gesticulate, you move, you walk confidently, and that will not only help your audience perceive you as confident, but it'll actually genuinely help you feel more confident. So three Bs, brain, body, and breath. That is just brilliant, tangible advice. I absolutely love it. This whole episode has filled me with so much practical advice and I can't wait to try and go and use some of these and put it into practice. If people want to know more, what can they do? Where can they go? Tell us about Body Language Decoder. Yeah, so last year I published Body Language Decoder, 50 cards split into different sections like confidence and deception and conviction and nervousness. Give you signals of things you can do or not do. If you follow me on LinkedIn, like you, I'm not quite as prolific as you with my video tips, but I I, I show little uh, video clips. I go, well, here's here's a politician doing something. Here's the lesson you can learn. Do that. Don't do that. There's lots of free tips on my LinkedIn profile. There's uh, my website, successthroughimpact.com. Again, has got some free tips and videos on there, but also links to my video series on teachable.com. I've got video courses on teachable.com. Again, there are nice low cost ways of going in and finding out some information uh, about key tips, things people can do with their body language, how to be more effective. And where can we find the cards? Amazon? Amazon, yeah. It's put body language decoder into Amazon and they, a day or two later, they will magically arrive <laughs> on your doorstep. Those 50 illustrated cards. Fantastic. Martin, it's been my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining. Um, I think people have got a huge amount out of this. So all I can say is thank you. Thank you for your time. You're more than welcome. I've really enjoyed the chat and I hope your listeners have got some takeaways that they can go and use and be more confident, more credible, and more competent in their, in their pitching. This has been another episode of Pitch Masters. Go to pitchguy.co.uk for updates and information, or search for Pitch Guy on social media for regular videos on sales, psychology, storytelling, creativity, and much more.